this bananas thing that they're doing, which has 0.0 chance of electing a president, but has a pretty significant chance of electing Trump. Welcome to Politicology. I'm Ron Steslow. This is our weekly roundup, where we invite a rotating panel of experts to discuss the truths you need to know behind the most important stories of the week and how they're shaping the political landscape. And on today's wonderful panel, returning to the roundup is Matt Bennett. Matt is the co-founder of Third Way and executive vice president for public affairs. He earned his JD from UVA Law. He's a veteran of both Bill Clinton's presidential campaigns and served as deputy assistant to the president for intergovernmental affairs in the Clinton White House. Matt, as always, wonderful to see you. Great to have you back on the show. Thanks for having me. Also returning to the roundup is Andy Kroll. Andy is an investigative reporter for ProPublica where he covers voting, politics, and threats to democracy. He's the former Washington bureau chief for Rolling Stone magazine and has written for Mother Jones, National Journal, and the California Sunday Magazine. He's also the author of A Death on W Street, The Murder of Seth Rich and the Age of Conspiracy. It would make for great summer reading. Uh, Andy, how you doing? Good to see you. I love that plug run. Thank you. Great to be back. Up first this week, we are going to dive into the no labels plan for a third party presidential run and all of the controversy that it is spinning up. Then the crowded presidential primary field gets a little more crowded as Chris Christie and Mike Pence enter the fray. Next, we'll discuss Jonathan Haidt's proposal in the Atlantic to keep phones out of school. Finally, for our Politicology Plus subscribers, we'll dive into the proposed plans to ban certain appliances like gas stoves and furnaces. To get ad-free access to the show, plus many more special episodes on a private podcast feed, head on over to politicology.com slash plus, or click the link at the top of today's show notes, and we'll dive in right after this. Hey, everybody. I just want to cut in with a quick note about this segment in particular. We did reach out to No Labels to join us yesterday, and they declined to participate on short notice, which is understandable. But we are working with them on an episode uh, that would include representatives of their strategy later this summer. On Sunday, West Virginia Senator Joe Manchin was on Fox News Sunday, and he was asked about a recent New York Times piece that said that No Labels was eyeing Joe Manchin as a possible third-party candidate to run against Trump and Biden in 2024. Here's what Manchin said. Um, I got to ask you about this. Um, The No Labels political group continues to fund and organize. They're trying to get in all 50 states. They want to be on the ballot to run a third party ticket. Um, New York Times says that's got Democrats very upset and worried it's going to reelect President Trump. And they say this at the top of the list of potential candidates is Senator Joe Manchin, the third, the conservative West Virginia Democrat who has been a headache to his party and could bleed support from President Biden in areas crucial to his reelection. I always ask you, you have not ruled it off and taken it off the table. Is a third party run still in the realm of possibilities? Shannon, No Labels has been moving and pushing very hard of the centrist middle, mm-hmm. making common sense decisions. People that basically expect us to do our job and not put the political party ahead of the policy in our great country. That's what we've seen happening. And there's more noise and more extremism coming from the far left and far right. They've been pushing this middle. If the middle has pushed what, what we just saw happen, that was the middle pushing. So that's basically a, a movement where No Labels has been proposing mm-hmm. for a long time. So we talked about the no labels, um, quote unquote, insurance policy 
2024. They're working to get on the ballot in all 50 states to open the door for a third-party candidate if the nominees from the Democratic and Republican parties do not accept a yet-to-be-released policy agenda. And I've worked on the democracy reform front uh, and worked on developing a new party. Um, I should say that I am sympathetic to the idea of having an option outside the two-party system. And, uh, and it is undisputable that a majority, an overwhelming majority of Americans want, have expressed a desire for more options outside of the, the two major parties. Um, however, I am highly skeptical of the math here. Um, and their and their broader strategy. So, Matt, you just put out a report at Third Way with one of my former colleagues, Lucas Holtz. Shout out to Lucas about the electoral math no labels is using here. Can you break that down? The most important question around the no labels bid is: Can they win the election? Is it time in American history where they can defy all of what has come before and all the rules of political physics that we know in the known universe and win the election? They claim the answer is yes. They claim they can outperform every third party candidate that has come before, including one carved into Mount Rushmore. Uh, no one has come close to winning as a third party candidate, and no third party candidate has won a single electoral vote since 1968 when George Wallace did it running as a, a racist. So they claim they can, they can defy all that. And in fact, they claim they can get 270 electoral votes and the map that they put out recently suggests that they can win 25 states. So we looked at their map very carefully and we broke it down and we gave them, to say that we gave them the benefit of the doubt is massively understating it. We gave them the benefit of every doubt you could possibly find. If you award them all of the states that were decided by 10 points or less in 2020, which is to say, I mean, 10 points is not close in current uh, modern politics, but let's just suspend disbelief entirely. They still are almost 100 electoral votes short. To get to 270 electoral votes, they would have to win states, and they claim they can, that Joe Biden won by 30 points or more, or that uh, Trump won last time by 20 or 25 or 28 points or more. Uh, it, it is preposterous to think that that is even remotely doable. They claim they're going to win Delaware, Joe Biden's home state of Delaware, where the train station is named after him and he is incredibly popular. So it is the map look like looks like it was put together by an intern who comes from some other country and doesn't know anything about American politics. I mean, it's completely ridiculous. And if that is their path to victory, then they have everybody I've it. spoken with who knows anything about political strategy has called this map some version of delusional. And we should be really clear about the implications of pursuing this strategy, which is why everyone is so upset, which is why there's so much controversy. It is that if they pursue this and they can't prove the claims or they can't demonstrate that they're trustworthy to execute the insurance policy as such, meaning pull the names off of the ballot if it looks like they aren't going to win, if they realize that they aren't going to win, this will result in a Trump presidency, if assuming Trump is the nominee. Um, that's just the way the electoral math will work out. And so, Andy, I wonder how you are thinking about what we should do, what voters should do with the reality that there is this overwhelming appetite for something else, for something different. I got a lot of... Um, 
uh, I got a, a lot of feedback after a, several weeks ago, maybe it was a couple months ago, when I just expressed a sense of despair at the idea of <sighs> Biden versus Trump again. And I think a lot of Americans feel the same way. No Labels uh, is at least speaking to that, is pointing to that, but with a very, very dangerous strategy. How should voters be thinking about this? Well, first off, I think the report that Matt and company put out exposing how insane, delusional this No Labels strategy is really needs to become much more widely known and and boiled down to something very comprehensible, simple, and irrefutable for voters out there. Because I do think voters are, they've got busy lives. They're not following the ins and outs of the No Labels Project and this map that they put together. And I hear the same thing that both of you hear, whether it's from people I meet out reporting or even members of my own family who email me out of frustration saying, I don't want a Biden-Trump rematch. I'm sick of both parties. What are my options? They're just going to reach for the one obvious thing that they see, which may be this no labels option, depending on how this plays out. So I think, you know, again, thinking about like members of my family, I'm thinking of an aunt in particular. If she saw this third way analysis, or if she saw coverage of this third way analysis and realized how quixotic probably is being, again, too generous to them, I think she would, she too would say, okay, yeah, I feel this way, but I don't want to, to, to throw the election to Trump. And I think a lot of people feel that way. And that, I feel like that point, the possibility that this third way experiment could lead to, again, a, a very fine margin election going to Trump, I think will really resonate with people. I don't know what the answer is on the national level in terms of how do you get away from Biden versus Trump? Or how do you get away from the feeling that both parties have have moved too far to the edges? But I do think that there's a lot of interesting stuff happening at the state levels and happening at the local levels that maybe because local news is so hollowed out, people aren't aware of. Or they see like one segment on Fox about ranked choice voting, for instance, and they think, oh my God, this is some kind of plot to you know take away my vote, to, to, to dilute the franchise. But there are a lot of really interesting things happening at the state levels. I mean, there's even in Michigan, my home state, there is you know an attempt, probably quixotic in its own way, to get some kind of fusion voting option on the ballot. I think it's the former head of the state Republican Party, Timmer, might be a former Lincoln Project guy, I can't quite remember, but definitely not a Trump fan who's trying to find a place on the ballot that isn't no labels candidates, but is giving people who are frustrated with both parties, but certainly don't want to reelect Trump, an option, both up and down the ballot. And so, you know, for the, again, the very smart and engaged listeners of this podcast, don't overlook what's happening where you live, your city, your county, your state, because people are thinking about these problems, trying to respond to that frustration and trying things at the state level that could help in a small way. And those things have to start local before they can go statewide and before they can go national. Yes, totally agree. And in fact, that is the right way to think about building something that is, um, that is sustainable and, and not you know, catastrophic in a single election. 
Matt, before we turn to process for a minute, especially at the state level, as Andy brought up, um, I want to give you one more one more uh, shot at this because I think it's important to make clear to listeners um, the incongruity uh, of no labels, uh, words, and actions. So when I sat through a briefing with them, they made it clear that a Trump presidency, Trump second term, was absolutely unacceptable to them. And yet, they haven't been able to demonstrate how this electoral strategy would actually work. And in fact, um, I think I saw Nancy Jacobson launch a pretty nasty attack against one of the most moderate members of Congress in her own No Labels um, uh, Caucus, the Problem Solvers Caucus, which has actually been instrumental and have been working with Third Way on 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 policy solutions. They've been very successful at that. So can can you speak to like the disconnect here between um, you know this stated goal of not allowing Donald Trump a second presidency, a second term, and uh, and almost like shooting themselves in the in their own foot. Yeah, the whole thing is bizarrely incoherent. So on the one hand, you're right. They they say over and over that they don't feel that a second Trump presidency is acceptable. On the other, as we've been discussing, what they're doing is the thing most likely to make it happen. Moreover, they have not been able to articulate at all the beef they have with Joe Biden. I mean, Joe Biden is, I think, the most successful moderate president that we have had in modern history. The guy has signed seven major bipartisan bills into law, despite having a five-vote margin in in the first uh, two years in the House and a zero-vote margin in the Senate. And and now being uh, having Democrats in the minority in the House struck a deal which wasn't perfect and there was plenty to quibble about, but was an incredible political achievement. So the guy is governing as a moderate. He is in his soul a moderate. What exactly is the problem with Joe Biden? They have not been able to say. Uh, So that's problem number one. Problem number two, as you point out, is that they seem to be sacrificing on the altar of this insane mission that they're on they are sacrificing work that they have done for more than a decade to build a center in the House around this group called the Problem Solvers Caucus. And my friend Josh Gottheimer, who is the Democratic co-chair of the Problem Solvers, said to the Washington Post a month ago that he thinks this is a bad idea. And a number of other Democratic problem solvers have, have joined him in that on the record, stating this is a terrible idea for all the reasons we're discussing. One of them was Brad Schneider, a congressman from Illinois, who has been- Former politicology guest. Indeed, and and a problem solver from the very beginning and and somebody who really devoted to this politics. And, And as you noted, no labels took out paid ads in his district communicating to his constituents that he had done something terrible by uh, opposing this thing. That is an incredibly weird thing to do. And it, it, it is troubling because it suggests that they are ready to walk away from the thing that they've created over the last decade in Congress, which, you know, say what you will about it, is a pretty impressive achievement. And, and instead, push all their chips into this bananas thing that they're doing, which has 0.0 chance of electing a president, but has a pretty significant chance of electing Trump. I want to turn to uh, some of the state level 
process that's playing out as they begin to execute this strategy? Because I think it's important. There was a story about their efforts to get ballot access in Maine. Now, Maine, uh, Andy mentioned ranked choice voting. Maine is a state that has ranked choice voting. The top election official in the state uh, claims to be concerned that No Labels is misleading voters to change their party registration in their attempt to get ballot access in the state. Now, let me just take a quick detour and remind listeners that ballot access, being able to get on the ballot for a presidential election, is a patchwork of rules uh, that are different in, a, different in every state. So every state works a little bit differently. Um, in Maine, you have to qualify as a party uh, in order to get ballot access. Now, we've already talked about No Labels not really being interested in building a long-term third party. What they're really just interested in is getting on the ballot for the presidential election. But in order to do that in Maine, they got to be a party. In order to do that, you have to get people to change their voter registrations to your new party. So the Secretary of State, Senate Bellows, sent a cease and desist letter to No Labels and an official letter to every voter registered with the party after complaints from local clerks and voters who said that No Labels had misled voters. She told NBC that voters were told they were signing a petition for ballot access when they were actually changing their political party to the No Labels party. Uh, That would prohibit voters from voting in the Republican or Democratic primary. Bellows said her office received enough complaints that her office decided to take the unusual step of sending a letter to the 6,000 voters who had registered with the No Labels Party in the state. Uh, She asked voters to contact her office if they believed they were misled. Uh, And so far, about 300 people out of the 6,000 have called or emailed in response. No Labels has said that they instructed organizers to ask voters to join the No Labels Party, and they noted that the form voters signed was titled main voter registration application. So I took a deep dive into this. I reviewed the materials the organizers were given by No Labels, and the instructions and the scripting could not have been clearer. Uh, We'll link to it here in the show notes in case anyone wants to inspect it. The very first sentence of instruction, we are focused on registering people for the No Labels party. The script includes the problem. The two-party system is broken and prone to gridlock. The solution... We need good voters like you to register with the No Labels Party so we can send popular independent candidates to Washington. The ask, can you take 60 seconds to update your voter registration and change your party affiliation to the No Labels Party? This is the script that the organizers were using. Uh, And in a letter to the main Secretary of State, No Labels attorney, Matt Sanderson, who coincidentally was our general counsel at the Lincoln Project, pointed out the speciousness of the claim, and he wrote, No Labels cautions the Secretary's office in creating and distributing its notification to refrain from repeating the aspersions cast on No Labels in your letter and to avoid using other language that would encourage unenrollment. And here's the part I want to emphasize. He writes, You are a member of a major political party and should not use your government office or public resources to suppress newly competitive political movements in this space. The other part I want to point out uh, is that It jumped out to me that sending official government mail to everyone who had changed their registration to no labels was a suspicious thing to do. Think of it like customer retention, uh, because this does not happen when you change your voter registration to any other party. So I want to be clear. like I'm very skeptical of their delusional electoral math, of their catastrophic strategy. However, treating no labels or any other political actor differently than any other political party is undemocratic. And I think it is paramount that we, that we emphatically reject even slight bias or corruption in the machinery of the democratic process, regardless of where it originates. And uh, Benjamin Chavez Jr., who's a civil rights leader, former top NAACP official, is now co-chair of No Labels, said the action was unprecedented. 
For her part, Maine's Senator Susan Collins was concerned about it. Um, so with all that devil's advocacy laid out, uh, and given that you know, we're on the same page about the insanity of the electoral strategy here, um, and, and, and also that the Democratic Party stands to lose more power to no labels than does the Republican Party, how are you both thinking about the potential for bias against them at the hands of official state actors who are partisans? I mean, I, I think the main example is a telling one. When you hear the language of that script, if that script was delivered at the doors as it was intended to be, that seems pretty clear cut to me. They're asking you to join their party. They're asking you to change your voter registration to be a no labels party member. Did people have regrets afterward and then voice those to the secretary of state's office, perhaps from the sounds of it? But you know, I mean, as a journalist, I'm always uh, skeptical of government using government power, a government official using her power in this case to clamp down on a, a minority group. <laughs> what is no labels if not a in number of minority group, given um, that it isn't really a political party at all? So yeah, it's it's troubling for sure, and I would not be surprised to see it in other places if uh, similar kinds of you know, organizing is happening and the, the structure is set up like it is in Maine. I just think people in a state like Maine, however, should know that if they change their voter registration to the No Labels Party, you are locked out of the primaries. You cannot vote R or D in the primaries. And I would not be surprised if a not insignificant number of people who signed that No Labels voter registration card still showed up at their usual polling place and said, I'm here to vote in the primary. And the clerk said, there is no primary for you. Or, you know, you are not doing <laughs> right. what you are used to doing in the past. I mean, you you hear this same thing happen in other states where people just change to independent. And there are closed primaries that yeah. they're not allowed to vote in. And there's confusion on primary day when they show up. And it's like, you're not voting in the primaries that everyone else is voting in or the majority of people are voting in. So... I wonder if there's an education gap here, but you know, I worry about secretaries of state or local party officials on both sides. Yes, you know, trying to find ways to prevent no labels from doing what they should be able to do, should be able to do, even if the you know actual strategy and calculus of what no labels is trying to do nationally is pretty dubious. Yeah, Matt, I'd love for you to speak to this, given how much time we've spent uh, on the defense of democracy on this show and in all other places, but mostly defending it against uh, assaults from the right, far more vicious assaults from the right than something like this. But how much more important is it going to be for Democratic office holders who oversee election infrastructure to check their bias when it comes to uh, an organization like No Labels organizing when they understand what the implications could be? Very important. And I think on, in broad strokes, I agree that there is risk here. Um, and and I can easily set aside my fear and loathing of this uh, no labels bid to, to address this question. However, I've been in politics for more than 35 years. And I can tell you, the script does not always get delivered. Uh, you know, it, like it is very, very possible, and I'm speculating here, rankly, but it is very possible that people were told by ballot, uh, by signature gatherers, hey, 
would you like to have a third choice on the ballot sign this petition? And, and sure, the form says what it's supposed to say. And perhaps people didn't read all the fine print as you know, closely as they might have. Uh, but I think uh, the, the question about defending people's democratic rights cuts in both directions, as Annie made clear. I mean, they are disenfranchising themselves by signing this form in a very significant way because they cannot vote in primaries. Um, if they were fully informed that they were doing that, if it was very clear to them, then then I agree this is a perfectly legitimate exercise and government shouldn't be involved in trying to suppress it. If, however, uh, they were told something or not enough about how what significant change this would be, then I think that's a real problem. And just one last point, which is if you change your party from R or D to another one or to independent, everyone, uh, American voters understand what they're doing. They may not know they live in a closed primary state and if they can no longer vote in the primary they were used to, but that's a risk I think everybody can understand accepting. But if you sign a petition for something you've never heard of, when someone says you could get a third choice by doing this, I don't think that is nearly as clear-cut a case as, uh, as the other. And I think it's a lot closer to the line. And so I think if she was getting real uh, objections to this, then I think it's probably something she did was valid. Okay, fair points. Um, I have one sort of follow up question about the grander strategy here, um, which is that CNN reported uh, New Hampshire Governor Chris Sununu will not run for president. Our good friend Lucy Caldwell pointed out that in his interview with CNN, Sununu said that he has decided not to run for president on the Republican ticket in 2024. There's been a lot of speculation that Manchin will be the nominee if no labels goes through with their plan. But just for talking purposes, Matt, how would it change things if the nominee was a Republican instead of a Democrat? Uh, it depends on who the Republican is, because you know Republican has become a very... Um, ill-defined term, it, they, you know, yep. if they nominate uh, Bill Crystal, right. you know, or, uh, <laughs> or Sarah Longwell, that's one thing. Uh, and if they nominate, you know, Cheney. Uh, right, exactly. Then it's, so I don't know exactly how it would cut. I do think that unless they were to nominate somebody who was fully in the kind of MAGA camp, then no matter who it is, it hurts Biden because it's the people looking for options are the people who are reluctant Biden voters. There are not a lot of reluctant Trump voters in the world. Um, there are going to be a lot of reluctant Biden voters, and they're the ones we're most worried about. Okay, let's turn to the uh, rest of the 2024 race. We haven't hit 2016 levels yet, but the crowded Republican presidential primary is getting even more crowded this week. Former Vice President Mike Pence has announced that he's seeking the nomination. Pence launched his campaign at an event in Iowa on Wednesday. According to one of my favorite political reporters, Jonathan Swan at the New York Times, Pence portrayed his former boss turned rival as unfit for the presidency and went further in condemning Trump than he ever has before. In his speech at the Des Moines area community college, Pence focused on Trump's actions during the attack on the Capitol on January 6th. He said, quote, President Trump's reckless words endangered my family and everyone else at the Capitol. He added, but the American people deserve to know that on that fateful day, President Trump also demanded I choose between him and our Constitution. Now voters will be faced with the same choice. I chose the Constitution and I always will, end quote. So most Republicans have avoided discussing Trump's role in the January 6th attack. And that is a huge part of why Liz Cheney is no longer in Congress. 
So how successful do you think, Andy, that Pence can be if he focuses on January 6th? How wide is that lane? I don't know if it's wide enough to win the Republican nomination. I don't even know if it's wide enough to win a number of states in the Republican nominating process. But I do think that this sets us up for a really interesting Republican primary battle. I mean, I just love the thought of Mike Pence standing on a debate stage with Donald Trump and talking about the events of January 6th, because I think I think Pence put it really clearly in very stark terms what then President Trump asked him to do, choose between the president's political survival or the Constitution. And Mike Pence chose the Constitution, and he really did that day. And frankly, there is an alternate history here that I don't want to read, certainly don't want to write, where Mike Pence buckles and we are in chaos, absolutely unprecedented territory. But he didn't do that. The thought of him standing on a debate stage with Donald Trump and having this argument, I think is I think it's a really good thing for the Republican Party. I think it draws very clear lines. I think Mike Pence has a credibility in, a, in, in, in large part, not entirely, because he was also Donald Trump's vice president. But I do think that January 6th gives him a kind of a credibility to stand on that stage and explain why Donald Trump is not fit to be president again. I think it's even more credibility than what Liz Cheney has put forward, though the argument is is similar in a lot of ways, what she said and what Pence has said. So, I mean, I'm glad that Pence is joining this primary. I think it makes it a lot more interesting. I think it makes it a lot more uh, consequential. And I think you're going to see just a lot of different I mean, I, I'm really fascinated to see how social conservatives in Iowa or South Carolina or Florida or wherever, Texas, are going to look at the choices or at least look at Pence and Trump and really make up their mind about who is a better candidate, who would make a better president. So I applaud Pence for getting in. Yeah, I want to see, I want to see that moment on the debate stage as well when he says, your supporters wanted to hang me. Exactly. And you did nothing. Exactly. I, f- exactly. I think I feel toward him the way so many Democrats feel toward Liz Cheney, which is I agree with him on virtually nothing, but I'm glad he's doing this, right? I'm I'm really glad he's doing this. Uh, even if the lane isn't wide enough, I want to see that moment. I want to see, even if it's just a brief moment of reckoning, um, I, think it is, I think it is good for the party and good for America. The RNC is requiring candidates to pledge support uh, for the eventual nominee in order to participate in the debate. So... You know, just as a follow-up, what's it going to mean if Pence takes a pledge that he'll support Trump if he's the nominee after saying he's not fit to be president because of January 6th, that the RNC just doesn't let him on the stage? I think that this pledge to support the nominee thing is uh, about as valuable as the imaginary paper that it's not written on. I mean, they're all going to say this because they all want to be on that stage. Mike Pence is not going to pass up the opportunity to stand on the stage next to Donald Trump and say what you just said, Ron you incited your supporters and they started chanting they wanted to hang me. Mike Pence will say, I'll support the nominee because he wants to be the nominee. I think he said that um, in his in his announcement speech uh, in Swan's story. But yeah, he, he's not going to pass that up. And, you know, I, I, I'm fascinated to see if Donald Trump will even go on a debate stage 
with Mike Pence because I don't know if Trump wants to have that kind of encounter. I don't know what Trump's going to say in response to that encounter, but I hope that they do because I, I, I think that that would be a really clarifying moment and a moment of reckoning, as you put it. Matt, curious about your thoughts on Pence, but also uh, former New Jersey Governor Chris Christie is also now in the race. He jumped in. He announced his campaign 30 minutes into a town hall event in New Hampshire. He also took some swings at Trump. Um, During the town hall, he called Trump a lonely, self-consumed mirror hog who is a threat to the Republic. Uh, Christie described his previous support for Trump as an error and called for other Republicans to join him in respect, interjecting Trump. Um, And the establishment lane is now looking pretty crowded. I have a difficult time taking Chris Christie serious on anything now, but um, how do you, what do you think that can mean for the race? When you say my former support for Trump was an error, the word error is doing a lot of work. I mean, (laughs) that's a pretty big error. Uh, And, you know, uh, it's not like any of this was a secret when Chris Christie decided to throw in his lot with Trump. So I have zero respect for Chris Christie and this awakening that he apparently has had to the fact that Trump is a lunatic and a threat to the Constitution and to the global order uh, comes a little late for me. Uh, I also think, I take Andy's point about the pledge not being worth anything. I think that's true. On the other hand, and and we saw this with Bill Barr also when he was on TV a few months ago and said, oh, Trump is a nutcase and he shouldn't get anywhere near the Oval Office, but I would vote for him against Joe Biden. I mean, let's just go back to that for a second. Like, that is insane. If you believe that Trump is a threat to America and you would vote for him over Joe Biden, I mean, this is, we're not talking about Bernie Sanders here. Uh, So I got to say, like, I guess these guys represent the establishment lane. I think that's probably the right name for it. But my God, the establishment has befouled itself in a major way. Yeah, well said. Uh, I don't know. Um, you know, <laughs> by the way, while we're on this topic, No Labels isn't the only one making a third party run at the presidency. We should mention Cornell West, um, scholar and activist Cornell West announced on Monday that he's running as a presidential candidate for the People's Party, um, which is new to me. West is known, uh, obviously, for his academic activism. He's the former professor uh, of the practice of public philosophy at Harvard and Professor Emeritus at Princeton. In his announcement video, West made the case that he, carry, he, he cares more about voters than the major parties. He said, neither political party wants to tell the truth about Wall Street, about Ukraine, about the Pentagon, about big tech. Um, we spent the whole first segment talking about uh, the potential challenge for Biden if he faces a third-party candidate from the center. What could a challenge from the left um, mean, Matt? And how much credence are you giving to this bid? Cornell West is a big name. He is, and I'm worried about it. Uh, the question is, is he more Jill Stein or Kanye? Um, you know, in 2016, Stein, uh, who was not a big name, but was an alternative, along with Gary Johnson, uh, the two of them took enough votes away from Hillary in, in three major states to probably throw the election to Trump or, or come very, very close to it. Um, yeah. 
it, Kanye didn't have that impact or whoever the, was on the ballot, uh, the gadflies on the ballot in 2020. So uh, my hope and expectation is that West is more like the latter than the former. But um, I will say that his book joined J.D. Vance's book in my uh, great regrets for having purchased and read uh, library uh, because I think this is a very destructive and bad thing to do. This week, DeSantis, just to close this out, traveled to Arizona to meet with law enforcement officials as he leaned into immigration on the campaign trail. He met with Cochise County Sheriff Mark Daniels, who has been an outspoken critic of President Biden's border policies after repeatedly praising Trump's border policies. DeSantis is staking out a position to Trump's right as they move into the primary. Uh, The trip came a day after a Florida official confirmed that the state arranged to fly migrants to Sacramento, echoing the stunt last year where Florida flew migrants from Texas to Martha's Vineyard. Andy, what are you making of this? Um, And if DeSantis can run to Trump's right and somehow win the nomination, what does that mean for the general election? Where is the room to Trump's right? That is a dark, dark place that I don't even want to fully contemplate, at least not live on the air here, so to speak. Yeah, it is bizarre. So I mean, bizarre. I, uh, watching yeah. DeSantis this spring and now into summer, it, it has been a strange experience. I mean, there was all this hype around him, obviously. He had a bench of big, big donors lined up. And then the moment he stepped into the ring, he seemed to be like the boxer with the glass jaw. You know, the first punch he took crumples to the mat. Or in some cases, like the first encounter with live human beings in a non-scripted setting, the you know software seemed to malfunction in some way. It's been strange to see how um, wobbly he's been. And when I talk to people, uh, consultants and stuff here in DC, you know, there's a, a little bit of shock at just how unimpressive he's been since he got in to the race. And, you know, even some fears that like, there's no amount of money we can throw at this candidacy that is going to prop him up in a way that makes him a credible challenger to Trump. He is getting big crowds, DeSantis, where he goes. And I think that that makes sense because there are people out there, there are a lot of Republicans who are looking for something other than Trump, kind of sick of you know all of the drama and chaos and insane egotism, narcissism. But Santos doesn't really seem to be meeting that moment in, in a real way. I mean, his, this immigration stuff, you know, it feels like he's trying another issue. He's trying to tap into something, into the zeitgeist on the political right. I mean, the flying the migrants thing is just feels like cruelty manifest theater. And it's not even, it's not even new. I mean, he's just sort of reprising his old hits because he thinks that's somehow going to, going to help him out. So I don't know, it's just all kind of smells like um, not quite desperation, but certainly mounting anxiety that he has not shot out of the cannon like everyone thought he would. Yeah. Yeah. I, I don't, I don't know what to make of the, um, the, the border thing, the immigration stuff. I, I guess we'll wait to see how it plays out. I have a bit of a heterodox view of his primary rollout though, which has proven to be very unpopular. Uh, which is in the context of a Republican primary, I actually think th- they're quite happy with how it has gone so far. And the 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 dissonance between the mainstream coverage of the technical glitches uh, is 
um, is dramatic compared with what the campaign is surely talking about and and thinking internally, which is that a million people tried to join our announcement and we broke Twitter. And uh, we talked about this a couple of weeks ago on the roundup and some listeners were like, how could you possibly praise it? No, we were not praising DeSantis in any way. I'm saying that in the context of a Republican primary, which is the only thing he cares about right now, um, that was a boon for him and the crowds are a boon for him. And so I think they're, I think the campaign, regardless of what other people are, are saying, certainly he seems to have a glass jaw, um, is quite pleased so far with how things are going. So I don't know what to make of this immigration thing. It seems like a, seems like a strange thing to do at this, at this particular moment, but I don't know. We'll see. The appetite is there. People seem to want an alternative that is not Trump, but that is they want, pretty. They want non-Trump. Right. Yeah, they want they want they want non-Trump. Yeah, they just he's not quite. Yeah, he's still figuring that out so far. Okay, let's take some time and look at this very interesting to me proposal to ban phones in schools. Earlier this week, the Atlantic published a piece by one of my favorite thinkers, uh, the philosopher Jonathan Haidt, um, who wrote. A, Lots of terrific books, but including uh, The Coddling of the American Mind and The Righteous Mind. Uh, he is a social psychologist at NYU Stern School of Business. Um, and in this piece, he called for banning cell phones in schools. Over the last several years, there's been an increase in evidence that social media and smartphone use have contributed to the declining mental health in children. Uh, and in teens, just a couple of weeks ago, the Surgeon General issued an advisory warning that social media can carry a profound risk, quoting, a profound risk of harm to the mental health and well-being of children and adolescents. This has all led to more parents and educators asking if they should ban cell phones in schools. Lots of studies have found that students check their phones during classes, even if there's a rule prohibiting it. Uh, there are also studies showing that even just having your cell phone in your pocket is associated with lower test performance. Heavy phone users have lower GPAs. There's been a decrease in the number of students who feel they belong in school over the last decade. And even in social settings when phones are present, people feel more distracted and reported that they enjoyed spending time with friends and family less than if they were phone-free. Height also argues that the current state of cell phone bans is ineffective. As of 2020, about 77% of U.S. schools had some kind of a cell phone ban, air quote cell phone ban, but most of these bans limit cell phone use to class purposes or require students to keep their phones in the bag or the pocket. And these are pretty ineffective. They're basically a, a wish, a wish and a prayer that uh, the rules are never really followed, especially as teachers get tired of trying to enforce them. Um, I'm, I don't know about you guys, but I've seen social media videos, really alarming social media videos of students s- screaming in hallways after their phone has been taken away. It's really, it's really alarming how, how, how emotional uh, and and traumatic it seems um, it can be when a student is separated from their phone. Um, so I'm curious what you made of this argument, what you made of Height's points. He took on some counter arguments toward the end of the piece and dealt with them, I thought, quite handily. Um, uh, Matt, do you have any thoughts on this? Since you know you guys are engaged in education policy, I wonder if this stuff ever comes up in your education portfolio or how you're generally thinking about um, you know, teen social media use um, and and how we might improve educational outcomes if um, if students didn't have these kinds of distractions. Well, let me just say at the outset, I, I don't have a professional point of view on this. We don't really okay. do this kind of uh, education policy. It's much more federal education policy is mostly about money, and um, okay. and so we we don't really do this. But I will say, uh, I have two sons. Um, 
both of them in their early 20s. Um, and both of them have said that they wish profoundly, and all of their friends wish, that they had grown up without cell phones. Um, that they view these, they know that they're addicted, but they're in the stage of addiction where it's like they need fix, not it's a great high. Um, and that's not a great feeling for addicts of any kind. And look, all of us feel this too. I mean, think about how you feel when you're separated from your phone. It's pretty bad. And we're adults. Um, and I am a huge fan of Jonathan Hyde. I think he's exactly right about the, the just devastating impact this is having on uh, the emotional and mental health of, of young people. There's just no question about it. I mean, you'd have to be insane to conclude otherwise that, um, that the distraction and the, the uh, impact of social media on the lives of young people is really, really hugely terrible in ways that we probably can't even reckon with right now. Um, however, uh, uh, teachers are and, and administrators in schools are already very, very maxed out. And yeah. um, turning them into the phone police uh, is a big ask. And I don't know whether they can manage it. So I, I'm, I'm really torn. Andy, general thoughts about the proposal? When I read that, Jonathan Hyde piece, I thought about every time that I go backpacking in the woods, because I think about, um, you know, as we turn the phone off or leave it in the car or, you know, lock it away because you can't use it out there anyway. And what is the point of walking in nature with a cell phone in your hand? And I always think about how the like first six hours I do feel like uh, a junkie who like needs the fix and can't get it. And I'm kind of like twitchy and agitated and imagining all the emails that I'm not reading that I should be reading. And then like the sick hour mark comes and goes. And then the, the craving sort of subsides. And I don't think about it anymore. And actually, it feels kind of amazing. You feel sort of released from all of that. You're just like, whatever. Emails will pile up. People will find me eventually, or I will find them eventually. Um, and I just can't imagine being, uh, to borrow from Matt, a teenager or even younger, and having this kind of experience, not being a, 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 an adult dealing with this, but being a kid and dealing with this. I mean, I just think we've been carrying out a massive, unsupervised, unregulated psychological experiment on young people for 15 years, 20 years. I mean, probably, probably 10 or 15 years, right? Like real smartphones. My high school phone was a Motorola Razor. It was very not smart. Um, we've been doing this in the social sciences just now, thanks to Jonathan Haidt and others, catching up to what we have wrought. So I'm in favor of throwing everything at the wall that addresses this issue. You know, maybe it has to start in private schools where some righteous principle is just going to say, we're going to try this. We're going to make people put their phones in their lockers between classes or all day, or we store the phone somewhere during the school day, pick them up at the end of the day, uh, just to see if we can make any kind of difference here. Because these, these apps, this, the, the technology is only getting more advanced. The apps are only getting more sticky, more clicky, more addictive. Um, I mean, I think, you know, TikTok compared to Twitter, I mean, this, we're not even in the same universe here. And so someone has just got to stand up and say, 
we're going to try things to see if we can do something about this. Otherwise, we're just sort of sacrificing young people um, in the name of, you know, better phones and cooler apps. And that just does not seem like the path to a healthy society, certainly a healthy future generations. Yeah, that was that last point was exactly my takeaway, which is we're these these are kids now, but what our society, the 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 technic technologically reliant society we have built around them that they've grown up in is shaping them and damaging them, I think. And I am concerned about how they're going to function uh, throughout the rest of their lives and, and whether or not we're going to, you know, what is this going to look like when, um, when they begin voting, when they begin trying to, you know, uh, live as, uh, you know, citizens in this country, it just, we seem to be setting them up for failure. Um, uh, and I, and I'm really concerned about that. I also thought it was telling, I don't know if it was in this piece, but I'm aware of a, of a growing trend among, uh, Gen Z of switching to dumb phones voluntarily like there's there's this there's this growing trend of gen zers who are like i don't want to take my my smartphone out with me to the movies or to my see my friends i want to take this dumb texting phone where i can use it if i need to but it's not going to be constantly notifying me of every view and like and comment and share and you know uh snap or whatever and so that gives me a little bit of hope because if the kids are figuring this out on their own um maybe maybe the phone bans in schools will be um won't be as controversial as uh as maybe we think they might be so uh i don't know that was that was my take i love away. this trend i've i'm here to preach the power of the motorola razor go get it it will change your life <laughs> ways you don't even know <laughs> totally we are now up to speed on some of the biggest stories this week. So let's turn to um, what you're watching. Matt, what did you bring to show and tell? I am watching some elections in Europe, uh, particularly in Central Europe, Austria and Hungary. Well, Hungary is already gone, but Austria is in very significant danger of moving to a very far right government. Um, they could win the election. And what could possibly go wrong with a far-right populist in control of Austria? Uh, you know, it, it's super scary. And I think there's a contagion effect uh, from Orban in Hungary that is infected. Poland um, is affecting, you know, a lot of the countries around there and is very, very dangerous and bad. So I'm really worried about that. Yeah, that's a good one. Uh I just have a quick shout out to Charlie Sykes over the bulwark uh, from a recent newsletter where he did a quick roundup of, you know, incitement, indictment watch uh, on the Trump front. So I just want to recap what we, what we know, what we don't know. What we don't know is whether Jack Smith is going to indict Trump in the Mar-a-Lago document case or when he will do it. Uh, Charlie writes, we also don't know what the exact charges would be, whether it's obstruction, espionage. And here's what he writes are five things we do know. One, a federal judge has already ruled that there is enough evidence of a crime to pierce the attorney-client privilege in the case, which is a very, very big fucking deal. Jack Smith sat in on yesterday's meeting with Trump lawyers. Uh, the grand juries are in session, and Donald Trump is losing his mind on social media. So um, nothing really to dive into yet, but I just wanted to um, remind everybody that this is still happening in the background uh, as this presidential race continues to pick up steam. Andy, what do you got? Well, if it's June, it is Supreme Court 
decision season. And this one is shaping up to be another uh, big time season of opinions. So we're, we've got outstanding cases on affirmative action, student loans, LGBT rights, and a handful of other big ones that, frankly, by the 1st of July, you know, our country could look somewhat different if these decisions go uh, go in, go uh, in, in a certain direction. So uh, I am fascinated to see how these, I mean, affir- affirmative action, these cases have been a long time goal. Yeah. In the works for, for, for decades, this is largely seen as, you know, the legal challenge that could finally uh, reverse affirmative action and, you know, the student loan case as well, major ramifications. So keep your eye on the court this month. I actually listened to the oral arguments of both of the affirmative action cases. One's North Carolina, one's Harvard, and they were fascinating, fascinating to listen to. The arguments are very, very interesting. Um, yeah, it's going to be a blockbuster season for sure. Okay. Uh, gang, before we flip over to Politicology Plus, uh, where we're going to talk about the plans to increase regulation on appliances. Is Biden coming for your toasters, Matt? <laughs> where, where can everybody find you on the internet? Uh, on the internet, I'm at thirdway.org is our website, and I'm thirdwaymattb on Twitter. And Andy? Go to propublica.org always. We have got some very good stuff cooking up quite soon. And on Twitter, I'm at Andy Kroll. Awesome. And I'm still reluctantly on Twitter, but really just checking DMs at Ron Steslow. Thank you to everyone at home and on the go for listening. If you haven't yet, we'd appreciate it if you could open up the Apple Podcasts app and give us a five-star rating and review over there. This helps us rise in the rankings so that new people can discover politicology organically. If you have questions about anything we've talked about, you can reach us, as always, at podcast at politicology.com. And even when we can't respond, we do read everything you send us, whether it's an episode idea, a guest recommendation, or just a simple note about how the show has impacted you. And we love hearing from you. I'm Ron Steslow. I'll see you in the next episode. <laughs>